Hello, everyone, and welcome to our Gem Pursuit. My name is Matthew Weldon, and I'm joined in our magical and mysterious pursuit to the world of antique and vintage jewellery by my trusty co-host, Elise Ketcher. Hello, Elise. Hello, everyone. This week, we are going to be jumping onto a completely new type of episode, but I think it's a super important one. Elise, what are we going to be talking about? So we thought we would um, help people on their own jewellery journey uh, by going through a few books that we would recommend to kind of get you started on your own journey through jewellery. So today we're going to be reviewing a very special book called Starting to Collect Antique Jewellery by John Benjamin. Fantastic book, a staple in the library. Can't wait to get started. So I suppose with the book, the first thing you see, and we know you can't judge a book by its cover, (laughs) but I mean, this one, as you said, starting to collect antique jewellery, right? So it's a great one for people who have an interest in antique jewellery, who've maybe seen a few different pieces, maybe have a few pieces, gone to a few different shops, and you want to try and put a bit of formalization or academic know-how behind what you're seeing, I think this is a fantastic place to start. Absolutely. I mean, I think what we're going to do today with this particular book is we'll go through first some of the positives that we see in this book, the reasons why we would recommend it to students, collectors and enthusiasts of antique jewellery. And then after that, I think we'll probably talk about some of the negatives um, from the book, just so that you can get a full kind of grasp of what you're looking at when you're looking at this particular title. And then, you know, really why it's benefited us personally, I think as well, would be a great way to kind of finish off the episode. So starting off with the positives of the book, Matthew, what do you think like John Benjamin was trying to do when he set out to make this book? Yeah, well, I think he was, his objective, I mean, he clearly states the objective of this book is to provide fundamental information which will enable the collector, student and enthusiast to recognise and identify many of the varieties of antique jewellery in the market. So, I mean, it, it's, it is definitely a beginner's guide, but I would also say it is quite broad. You've got 19 chapters and a few other different pieces of information at the start and the end. So the objective is that you get this broad overall view. So no matter what you see, I think you can categorise it quickly. And I have to say, you know, I think I think he does this because when I was reading through these books and the different chapters, okay, the gemstone one, we're working with gemstones every day. And it is actually the type of things that we say to clients. He's really bang on the money about how we describe them succinctly uh, and the key pieces. And if you knew the key pieces that he says, I think you're going to be on to a pretty good start. But I would also say at the slightly more obscure things, right? For me, I, re- I read, you know, the one, the, the chapter that stuck in my mind was the micro mosaic chapter. It's probably because we were looking at yeah. a really nice pair of micro mosaic earrings about uh, two or three weeks ago. And they had like uh, they f- butterflies and, f- and flies. Kind oh, they of. were gorgeous. 
they were gorgeous and you were telling me, oh my God, we have to buy these. And I, I was kind of, you know, look, micro mosaics, I'd have a good knowledge of it, but it wouldn't be my specialization. And I was looking at them, they're an eight carat gold. So mm-hmm. I was thinking, oh, it's low carat gold. Oh, that's, you know. Yeah. But having read this chapter, you know, he explains, um, the author explains that with micro mosaics, like the earlier ones were far superior. They're much smoother to the touch. They had smaller pieces of glass. And if there's any damage, you're in trouble. Because, you know, and this, and this is what I mean, he gets the key points across because the damage with micro mosaic, especially an early one, is fundamental because they use all the glass and they stretch out the glass to get all these different shades of colour. So each little piece is like a unique colour and you just basically can't replace it. So his point was bang on the money. If you're collecting micro mosaic, you see, oh my God, that's a beautiful micro mosaic. Ah, oh, there's a little piece missing. It's just, you're not going to get a repair. And that's really what you need to know. So that for me, he achieves that point. What about yourself? What do you think? I with I don't want to get too much about like personally what the book has done for me because I'll get into that at the end of the episode. But in terms of like the positives of what I see in this book, for anybody who would ask me, you know, I'm looking, I'm really, really interested in antique jewellery. I don't know very much, but I'm really, I'm wanting to kind of putting, put some information behind what it is that I'm seeing in front of me when I'm looking at antique jewellery. This is the book. I mean, as Matthew's just explained there, it explains the importance of condition. Now, it explains it to, to the reader in every single context of the items that we're looking at here. So for instance, if you're looking at a piece of turquoise, it will tell you what the condition is that you should look for when you're looking for a superior piece. It'll also tell you the difference between mass production and hand craftsmanship, which is something that's very difficult to learn if you haven't been hands-on with antique jewellery. It also explains and helps you understand different terminology which is used in the jewellery world, things that you may never have heard of, such as the word Holbianesque. What does that mean? Or even Cantile or uh, the different techniques that are used in the jewellery world All of those particular terminologies are explained in full with pictures. Yeah, photos are great. So this is really such a fabulous guide for people who want to know, want to see, and then want to go out and actually do. So it's a wonderful step and reference book that you can use to go back on when you're looking at antique jewellery. One thing that I really love about it as well is that it has um, original catalogue images from the time periods. So you've got like, for instance, the Victorian period, and it has a picture of what people who were purchasing jewellery during the time would have seen in a catalogue. And it shows you the different designs that they had a choice of and what the most popular designs were. And this is really important for us because it helps us to see, oh, I've seen that, I've seen that, I've seen that, I've seen that, but oh, I haven't seen that before. 
So then when you do see it, you know that you've seen it in a catalogue from the Victorian period. And the more information that you have like that, when you're dealing in the antique jewellery world, the better. Yeah, I mean, the breadth of photos in this book, I think, is a huge positive. A lot of time and effort went into that, but also a lot of connections, I think. And yeah, you coupled the actual original Victorian catalogues, which I mean, when you look at them, if you saw one of those today, you'd think it just looks so cool because it's so authentic. But that coupled with the pieces and, you know, they give a list of people who supplied pieces, some really, really important names in the antique jewelry world. S.J. Phillips is one, for example, who has a, an extensive collection you know, of all sorts of Victorian Wimpole as well is Wim- in there. Wimpole, Sandra Cronin, Wartskis, just heaps, right? So, but to get these photos and they're beautifully shot, I think, you know, and that coupled with the concise description. So you're going out there and you're going to look for a particular piece. You've got this concise description. You've got this picture in your head. It's going to join the dots when you're actually looking at a piece. Yeah, it's, it's a tool in the belt, right? So just like we have our loop or we have um, certain things that we use on a day-to-day basis, a gauge, all of those things, this is a tool in the belt. We need um, reference books like this that help us to understand what we're seeing, especially when things in the antique jewellery world are so unique. It has a lot of the pictures of things that are very, very rare in there so that when you see them, you're like, I've seen it before. I've seen it in in my reference book. One thing that I also really love about this particular book is I'm going to say one of the quotes that's in it because it helps you to understand, for instance, say that you're a husband and your wife is really, really into antique jewellery. And you're like, jewelry is jewelry is jewelry, right? The book will help you to understand a little bit more about the difference between antique jewelry and mass production. And so this is one of the quotes from the book. It says, a splendid $100,000 pearl necklace purchased from a leading international retailer certainly looks stunning but it can be replicated in any number of stores in a dozen different countries. An early Victorian gold cantile work brooch set with aquamarines or pink topaz implies singular good taste, distinctive character, and reinforces the suggestion that the person wearing it is breathtakingly chic. And I think for me, reading that kind of helps me to explain that to people as well. If you have a Victorian brooch that is handcrafted in a different time period, is exquisitely finished, and those skills, like we talked about in the dead arts, are no longer available on the workbenches of today, then you're wearing something that is one of a kind. Nobody can replicate it. You can't go to any store, in any shop, anywhere in the world and get that brooch again. Whereas mass production jewellery, things that have been created many, many times and will be recreated many, many times after you, kind of takes away the special element of having something 
that marks a special occasion. And I think this book really helps you to understand and appreciate that about antique jewellery. I think the last part of that is actually really important to remember as well, that even if they make it once, you know, a lot of the jewellery today is 3D cast. Even if that's the first one, it means it can be easy reproduced again. I know, for example, we had one very beautiful setting that one of our jewellers wanted to take and make a mould of. And I thought, no, because... Yeah, that is of the time. So exactly, um, and it never ever it never ever translates through. And understanding that when you read this book, you understand it breaks down the time periods for you. It gives you specific fashions of the decades. For instance, there's a we talked about the Victorian period when we did our Victorian episode in the era that it's back in the yes in season three, I think. But that particular episode, we talk about the Victorian period, like 70 years is just 70 years, you know. In this book, it breaks down the Victorian period for you in in bite-sized chunks. So you understand what you're looking for in the different decades. It goes through the early Victorian Romanticism period. It goes through mid-Victorian confidence and revivalism. And then it goes into the late Victorian mass production. So it really breaks it down for you if you already have started and you want to get into the nitty gritty of antique jewellery. It also takes you to basics and adds and ads and ads as you learn and you read and see. So it's really something that you can have a lot of confidence in. It helps you understand important exhibits that went through and changed jewellery fashions. And it also shows you quirky jewels that are only seen in certain time periods. So, you know, a lot of the time we look at things from like the Art Deco period and people go to me, oh, that looks modern. And you're like, it does look modern, but it's not. And you can have confidence in knowing that it's not modern because you have actually seen the different way that things are crafted and also the signatures and also the way that the cuts are done and the settings are done that aren't done any other in any other time period but that period. I think the correct phraseology people should use there is that that almost looks antique because <laughs> uh, that's it's uh, almost every modern design and sorry there, there's great modern designers but the, you know inspiration is always drawn from the past and even with as is described you know particularly with the the gold work in this book uh, and many different other fashions they actually draw inspiration from even ancient Greece ancient Rome ancient Egypt so uh, we're always looking to the past to see where we go with the future that was quite philosophical of me but <laughs> so another positive I think definitely worth speaking about in this is it gives you fantastic photos, you know, great brevity in the descriptions. It's a tool, it's a tool in your armor for sure, right? But I also think it's quite practical, right? And there's a section at the back, which is called a compendium, which is actually, is a word I never heard of before. Shows how many books I read, but uh, actually quite a lot. But it's really practical. And I'll tell you why, because, okay, the antique jewelry, industry is so pragmatic. You have to be handling the pieces, looking at the pieces and assessing them. 
and you will get a good understanding of what to look for photographically and, you know, with the descriptions in the book. But at the back, this part tells you how to actually look after them. It gives you a section on how to clean, what not to clean, which is probably uh, just as important as how to clean it, right? Uh, how to assess valuations. This is something people give, yeah, valuations. You buy a new ring and you get a valuation which is worth more than the ring. But you could go back in two minutes later and buy the same ring. So how is it valued at more? In the case of an antique piece, okay, you get it, you pay X for a necklace, say, but the valuation will actually be more because if you go and get that made again new, it will cost more and that's your cost to replace, right? So um, it also deals with how to assess fakes, forgeries, signatures. Again, the rarer and the more valuable the piece, the more the temptation is out there for someone to try and... and um, try and uh, replicate it, basically. Um, in particular, and, and, you know, just beside this section, there's also the key makers in history, right? So, and that that leads into your, you know, this Fabergé, and it notes, you know, you have to be super curf- careful with Fabergé because the name, just say the name, it just, it's just so mystical. So, so I think that section is a fantastic tool that allows you to apply the knowledge that you would have got uh, in the previous uh, 19 chapters. So still to come, plenty more information as we deep dive into starting to collect antique jewellery by John Benjamin. But first, we're looking back at some of the most interesting and star posts on our Instagram profile throughout the year. Elise, which one or two are we going to talk about? This is a hard one because I post on Instagram at least twice a day, every day for the full 365 days of the year. That is a lot of Instagram. That is (laughs) a lot of Instagram. It is a lot of Instagram. And we love posting and showing off some of the incredible pieces that we do that we do receive into the store they're just magnificent and it's a great way for you to view our antique pieces however the most beautiful piece that I think that we got in this year was a convertible piece and It's linked in our show notes so that you don't have to scroll all the way back to the middle of the year to see it. But it actually was an Italian piece that we got in from an Italian family, actually. And it was, it's two amazing old European cut diamonds. And these particular diamonds are just under four carats each. And what's really mesmerizing about them is that they're so perfectly matched that it's uncanny. It's really, really unusual to find two hand-cut diamonds which are so perfectly matched in scintillation, in color, in clarity. um, In size. In size and overall performance. Both of them are interchangeable. You wouldn't be able to tell the difference between the two without really looking closely. 
So, you know, as a jeweler who, the jeweler who would have seen these two stones and these two stones kind of come and sit on the desk of the jeweler's bench is how you usually, or the designer's bench, you think what would have gone through their mind when they got these particular stones? And it's a no brainer, really. The first thing that you would have thought when you saw these two stones as a jewelry designer was earrings because they're so perfectly matched. I mean, something that's such a pair like this has to be a pair of earrings. So we see that they have been turned into these exquisite drop earrings from around 1915 into 1920, but I'd say 1915. And the wondrous thing about them, not only do they come in their original box, and they're spectacular, beautifully articulated, sparkling beyond the skies, is the jeweler did not stop at a pair of earrings. It was like, they're too special to just be in a pair of earrings. And so another design was created to house these beautiful stones. So the earrings are indeed convertible and they can be easily removed, but are securely attached once in, but removable from the earrings and go into a two stone ring. And it is beyond exquisite. If you'd like to see the videos of showing how it exchanges from one into the other, how it converts, you can see in our show notes, it has two links there, which will take you to the wondrous piece. It's one of those pieces, you know, we get offered so much and a lot of it is similar kind of quality, you know, and, but, you know, what we're really looking for, what we specialize in is these star pieces that come into us and that one. It actually, it also came in with a tiara, by the way, which uh, we haven't had. That'll be another star piece. Maybe you'll see it in 2024. Yes, uh, that one will be out then, so... And I couldn't go amiss as well without saying for another post, which is coming late in the year, is our New York Times piece. We were um, we were featured, the podcast was featured in the New York Times and we were photographed for the New York Times and we've, we've got that up on our Instagram as well. So that was a huge highlight for us this year. Yeah, and thank you for all your support and enthusiasm for Gem Pursuit because one of the key points that they're really interested in was obviously the amount of people who listen, but also the amount of time, the length, the, these episodes tend to be quite long, but people seem to listen right to the end, which they found very interesting. So we really thank you for your continued support for Gem Pursuit. Matthew, we've talked a lot about the positives of this book, but if you had to point out any negatives, what would they be? Well, I think the key thing here is what did John Benjamin set out to achieve, right? And provide fundamental information for collector students and enthusiasts to identify. So I actually think he does that really well. Some things I would have liked to seen. Uh, two things I noticed, right? Number one, this is an interesting one because he actually identifies it. He says that 
many a time he, he heard a veteran dealer bemoan that the Bella Poc ring that someone bought 30 years ago for 250 pounds is now 5,000 pounds. I think some of those values are slightly dated because I think it's now more like the Bella Poc ring you just paid 10,000 for is more worth, you used to be able to buy it for five. So I feel like the values probably, and it could just be that it's a slightly older book and, that, and that's, that's just a, if it was reprinted today, it would be. Exactly. So the first negative that I had written on, on my um, notes was the book was originally published in 2003, which is over 20 years ago. So some of the pricing and fashions have changed. So in the beginning of the book, one of his quotes, he says, a few years ago, post-war retro jewellery was proving difficult to sell and currently Victorian diamond flower sprays are in low demand. No doubt in 10 years time, nine carat gold charms will be the ultimate in chic, which means... Oh, he's prophetic. <laughs> yeah, which means that he he is prophetic because again, the nine carat gold charm bracelets are the ultimate chic, but that shows that in 2003, they weren't. And also he, he talks about retro jewelry proving difficult to sell a few years ago, which again, retro jewelry is in high demand now. And anything really from the Victorian period, including flower spray brooches are back in fashion now as well, and are in high demand. So there is a few things in terms of fashions that have changed, but he does highlight that in the beginning of the book and he tries his best throughout the book to just give an overall view of all of the knowledge that he has, which I really appreciate. But it is something to keep in mind, definitely, that the book was published in 2003. Yeah, and I think that's the key point to remember that it, it was correct at that time. But just when you're reading it today, you have to bear that in mind. Yeah, the retro jewellery, a key one. But don't forget 2003, so 20 years makes a difference because a 1970s piece in 2003 is 30 years ago, whereas now it's 50, like it's a half century yeah, old so, now. So so it's, it's considered more like, you know, back then it wouldn't have been considered retro. It would have been considered like 90s jewellery today. <laughs> So, and 90s jewellery today for us seems extremely like close to all of us. Another thing that I would mention about, you know, as a negative would be the further reading that is given after each chapter. He gives book references after each chapter and some of those book references that he gives are no longer available so it's something to be mindful of. Like I always like to look at further reading because he has obviously created a wonderful brief description. And if you want to go deeper into a certain subject that you find in here, you would perhaps look at the further reading that he's provided at the bottom. But many of those books, especially in the jewelry world, they only get published for a certain amount of years and then they become extremely rare books. And, you know, outside of the library in the in central London, it's hard to find some of the titles that he has, that he has mentioned after each chapter. Yeah. I mean, 
great that there is further reading provided, but yeah, if you can't access it, it's, it's obviously going to make it more difficult. I mean, for me, they were the two main things. I think overall, the, the goal is achieved in, in providing the, the brevity. And, and even though with each chapter, though, and to be fair, each there's 19 different chapters. Every single one of them could be a book. So Definitely. Well, with John Benjamin, I, I actually don't know where he is today. I would actually really like to meet him because I've read this book like at least twice a year, every year since I've been in an antique jeweler and I reference it quite a lot. But for me, there's one chapter that I always skip over because I really don't like it. Can I try and guess? Yeah, go for it. What chapter would Elise skip over if she didn't <laughs> like it? Let me see. Well, it's not chapter one, Gemology and Gems. Although you probably are so au fait with that. There's probably, I mean, you know, you're a, a double qualified gemologist. So, you know, it's not pitched at for you really. No, but, but I still love reading over it. I love gemstones. I would say, oh, wait, I think I might know it. <laughs> Hold on, let me just make sure there's no other ones. There's Cameo and Taglios, you'd enjoy that. Mosaics, you'd like. Jewelry in Scotland, you'd probably be okay. Yeah. Flora, Fauna, Sentiment and Love. Well, you'd like that one, I'd say. But <laughs> um, there's a chapter here that's sticking out to me. And it's about silver. Would that be the correct chapter? <laughs> that's one of them. But there's one that's even more that I don't, that I never read. That I've read once or twice, I'd say. And it, and it, and it, um, it, it doesn't have, it doesn't have as high value as, and it's not made of precious metals. Right. Usually. Haste yeah. chapter? Really? <laughs> yeah. I think that's a, I don't know, I think that's a good chapter. <laughs> no, I'm just like the paste chapter. I've written paste jewelry section is probably my least favorite, although informative, not particularly useful for me. Yeah, but <laughs> let's just hold on there for a second. Let's just roll back, right? So, like you know, that this is this is seen as a, a, a negative, maybe that I think it's not negative. I like it. <laughs> I would counter that though by saying that I think we have just purchased the most amazing paste perer you could possibly see, imagine. See that there is always, and this is one thing that I'd say to anybody who's getting into antique jewelry, right? There is always an exception to every rule that you have. There's an exception to, I don't like paste. Oh, and then walks in like a Georgian perer. Of course I'm going to like that. Like it's, but the typical paste that we see on a day-to-day -day basis that comes into me is foil backed and it is metal and it is falling apart and it's basically lost its sparkle, let's say. So in that case, not interested. Yeah, but fine, fine Georgian pace, as you said, is yeah. a different thing. Yeah, so. but so the, it is a, it is a, um, it is a chapter that I, thank you, John Benjamin, but I do skip over it most of the time. And if there was one that I'd skip over, well, I don't, I don't think there's, 
many there. And as I said earlier, mosaics would be in the one that I typically wouldn't have read, but actually haven't read it. I'm mad keen to go find a few micro mosaics <laughs> or Roman mosaics, as apparently they used to be called. And that would be my biggest tip to anybody out there as well. And I've spoken to Matthew's father, uh, Jimmy Weldon, before about this. And, you know, Jimmy's been in the industry now for like over 60 years. And I said to, I was speaking with him on a long car journey one time and I was teaching him about, I was teaching him about something to do with antique jewelry. And then he was teaching me about something to do with antique jewelry. And he said to me, you know, the worst thing that you can do as an antique jeweler is think that you know it all because there's always something new to learn and there's always something new to appreciate. And the moment that you stop is the moment that you miss a trick in this industry. Okay, lastly, how has the book benefited you personally? Or, or has it benefited you so as, in any way? So as I say, absolutely. You, you, I think the, the great thing about this book is you'll always pick up something new because it's so broad, right? You'll always see a new tip or a new line that you go, oh, yeah, that, that helps. And I, there's one specific example that I will give now in a second, you know, and obviously this is pitched to collector students and enthusiasts. I think it is relevant to dealers in, in the broad sense of it, in the more obscure topics that it covers. Memento Mori stuff, if you don't know much about that, that'll give you a good broad understanding you know, we talked about the values might be slightly dated, but then again, he does say it's not a valuation guide. So uh, I can't hold that to, to, to heart. But what I got of this is we were looking at a collection the other day and it had a very beautiful enameled pendant with a green stone in the center. Incredibly detailed piece, right? And as I was flicking through the pages of this book, I saw a pendant very like it. And then I looked up the word Holbyanesque, as you mentioned earlier. And for me now, having seen the piece, I, I, I remember looking at this piece, it was at a sale I went to uh, abroad. And I remember looking at it going, God, that looks like a very fine piece of jewellery. And this, uh, John, John Benjamin took this piece as the finest example of Holbyanesque. Now, it wasn't exactly the same. And in fact, the one I was looking at had a a faux emerald or a synthetic emerald in the middle. And looking at the one in this book, I actually wonder whether it is a natural, it's a natural emerald, but it's so alike. It's unlikely that they might have, um, it, it, because, because it's an enamel piece, it's not about the emerald. It's just about having a nice colored stone in the middle. It doesn't affect, the, it, it, for once I'd say having a big em emerald in it wouldn't affect the value massively. I think for me, that's that's what I took out of it even for the collector or the enthusiast with a broad knowledge, you'll pick up something in one of the slightly more obscure, and I don't even mean obscure, it's obscure if you're not used to it, right? Hall S jewellery. You'll pick up something every time you read it about one of the slightly more obscure pieces. And I think it's fantastic for that. Having read it twice a year now, Elise, uh, <laughs> since I started antique jewellery, which wasn't today or yesterday now, I don't want to, but... Um, what would you say you've picked up from our review of this book? So John Benjamin, I mean, the detailed guide that he's put together here has become like an old friend to me, really, over the years when it's when looking at antique jewellery. And 
What's wonderful about it is we'll put a link in the show notes so that you can actually find a copy for yourself because it is one of those books now that you can get that's still kind of under the 50 euro, $50, 50 pound, wherever you are in the world range. In the jewelry world, that's really difficult to find, to find a book that is within the price, within that kind of price range. They usually go well over the hundreds, sometimes into the thousands for mm. these books. Henri Verber, that's a, yeah. yeah. they're really, really hard to get your hands on. But I found with this book that it was a companion to me when I was learning about antique jewelry. And it kind of held my hand and walked me through it when I started to learn about antique jewellery right from the beginning when I was still a young gemologist and and still like appreciating only, only gemstones. So this helped me to kind of pair what I was seeing with the time periods and then as I moved on through my career, I became, it became kind of the trainer's guide that I would use to train staff members that were new in antique jewelry. And I would reference it. I would say, did you read that section? Because I would always know if they had or hadn't because I could ask them certain questions. And I knew that the questions were answered within the chapter. And it really has it really is a guide for you as the trainee, the trainer, and also then as a reference book as you get later on in the antique jewelry world. Just yesterday I was showing, a dealer was looking at it because I was just flicking through it to make sure that I'd got some of my favorite points across from, from the book. And a dealer walked in and he kind of looked at the book and he was like, what book is that? And I said, oh, I showed it through through to him. And he goes, do you mind if I take a few pictures so I can um, so I can actually go go out and buy that book? He goes, how much is it? And I'm like, oh, it's usually around the kind of 35 euro kind of range. He's like, oh my gosh, going on right now to purchase. So it is one of those, it is one of those books that you know, some people know about it. Some people don't know about it, but once they are in the industry and they've seen it, they want a copy of it. For me, like I said, it's walked me through the antique jewelry world many times. It's led me down many rabbit holes, trying to find additional reading and references and trying to find some of the pieces that are, that are actually photographed within the book. But it is a comprehensive guide for those, if you're going into, if you're going into the new year now, really wanting to deep dive into antique jewelry, this is the diving platform to start on. And as a final point, Elise, I'd say there is one thing in here, which is not there, but all I can say about this is watch this space. Anyway, a key book to read and certainly one for anyone who's enthusiastic about antique jewellery to have in your library. I really hope you enjoyed listening to our review of starting to collect antique jewellery today. And if you have any questions, don't hesitate to contact us. You can do it through Instagram at Courtville Antiques or through our website, www.courtville.ie. 
And all of the links of anything we talked about are in the show notes of this podcast. I'd like to take the chance to thank my co-host, my trusty co-host, Elise Ketcher. Thank you, Elise. Thanks, everyone. And of course, our podcast producer, dustpod.io. Until next time, from me, Matthew Weldon, see you soon.